Well, kids, if uh, you haven't left for Children's Church, you're welcome to do so at this point. Thank you. Well, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, as we continue our study in this letter from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, we find that Paul has been giving instruction concerning the church. But now as we come to the 14th verse of this third chapter, we find that the Word of God reveals to us God's picture of the church. You know, for many, they see the church as an archaic institution that was established by man. And they sort of view the church as something that's pretty irrelevant. It's probably seen its better days. It's on its way down. It's on its way out. And I'm not talking about Oaklawn Bible Church. I'm talking about the church at large. They just don't see the relevance anymore. Other people have been hurt by the church. Maybe they were in another church where feelings were hurt, where things were done that somehow really set them back in their walk and in their faith, and they view church as a place where you go and you get hurt, especially if you get involved in leadership. If you're involved in leadership, there's almost a guarantee you're going to get frustrated and discouraged, and so that's how some people view church. Well, what we find in the Word of God is a different view for church. You see, God reveals in this text how He views the church, how He wants us to view the church, and how we should behave in light of that view. What the Word of God is telling us is, first of all, who we are as the church. And bear this in mind, the church is not a physical building. When this building is empty of people, it's not a church. We call it a church, but the true church are the people. If this building burnt down, if I were to cook in this building and cause a fire, (laughs) something that happened in the parsonage a few years ago, for those of you who are new, and this building were to burn down, would that be the end of Oaklawn Bible Church? No. The church is the people. So we need to know who we are. But in addition to knowing who we are, we also need to know what we're to do. And that's what we're going to see in the text that we're looking into this morning. We're going to see that we are the people of God. We are God's building. We are God's church. And in light of that truth, we should worship Him and we should conduct ourselves as God would have us conduct ourselves. And that's what we want to see. So as we go into this text, we want to start with this idea. We are to pursue God's will for the church. If you really want to know how to conduct yourself, you have to understand what God wants. And really, this is something that Paul has been sharing for about three chapters now. How should the church of God conduct herself? How should we as individuals who are coming together in fellowship and in worship, how should we behave? And what we've seen are instructions concerning how we're to treat one another, how we're to come to worship, 
how we're to follow the leadership of the church. Many, many instructions had been given. And really, the Word of God is talking about those instructions, but really, it's also talking about instructions that are to come. What we need to understand is this. The church isn't a place where we come to hear ideas just bantered about. It's a place where we're to come and see what God's Word says. And it's a place for us to understand that those have practical life applications for every day. The church is to be a place that encourages us to live as God would have us live. To live as the church of God. Look at the 14th verse. The Apostle Paul says this, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you these instructions. In other words, this is teaching that I'm giving you. And these instructions are given so that if he is delayed, you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in God's household. The church really is about instructing us in conduct. Teaching us the Word of God. You see, the instruction that the Word of God gives us isn't something that was made up by men. The Word of God teaches us that the instruction that's contained here in the New Testament, not just Paul's letter to Timothy, but all of the New Testament, it is instruction that is given by God. It is an instruction manual for us so that we'll know how we're to live, what we're to do, how we're to live out the life that God has called us to in a relationship with Him. That's the idea. And what we need to understand is this. Conduct isn't based on what I feel at any given moment. Conduct isn't based on the popular idea that might be the flavor of the month. Conduct is to be based on the eternal Word of God. That's why we have instruction from the Scripture, so that we can live it out. It's to be practical. It's to be something that we look at and say, this is what God says. I will follow what God says. We are to conduct ourselves according to the Word of God. Why? Notice what the Scripture says in verse 15. We are to conduct ourselves in God's household. Now, when the Scripture describes us as the church, as God's household, what's it communicating? First of all, I think it's communicating since it's God's household, who owns the church? We are His possession. We belong to God. A little bit later, we're going to see a verse that talks about this. But it also describes an interrelationship that we as believers have to one another and that we have to God. We are a household. In other words, we are a building, not a physical building, but a spiritual building. And what the Scripture describes for us is a relationship to where we come together as individuals to comprise something that is of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says this, Consequently, you're no longer foreign, foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, now look at this, members of God's household, built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. So the image is Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And each individual Christian is a contributing brick or stone in the building built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. There's an interrelationship. Pull out one of the stones and the building becomes weaker. We need to understand that we need one another, that we need Jesus Christ most of all, and that God is building us with purpose for something that is greater than the individual. Now that's something that really needs to be driven home to us as Americans. As Americans, we're individualistic. As a matter of fact, the world kind of revolves around us as individuals. When you go to churches that are in other countries, the individualism that we have here in the United States isn't as pronounced. They think about the community and the group then themselves. And I'm not saying everyone, but for many in American churches, we think about ourselves and then the community. We need to understand that we are a part of a whole, that we are a part of God's building, that we have come together for God's very special purpose. Notice verse 21 says, In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We are able to accomplish something together that we can't accomplish on our own. You couldn't grab a stone and throw it on the ground and say, now there's our temple. You need to have them together to build a temple, the dwelling place of God. Now, while God indwells each individual believer, there's something special that happens when we come together as the church, as God's household. And that's what's communicated in this passage. The Scripture says, in Him you too are being built together, now look at this, to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. The dynamics of believers coming together, using their spiritual gifts, using what God has developed in each believer as a contributing part of the Christian community, it's essential. And God wants us to view ourselves in that way and conduct ourselves accordingly. I like what Peter says. As you come to Him, the living stone, speaking of Jesus Christ, of course, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Do you view yourself in that way? It's a biblical view. We need to understand our place in God's plan. And an integral part of God's plan is that I am part of a church, a local church, but I'm also a part of God's purpose and God's plan for the church of all true believers. We have a high privilege being a part of God's household. And what we need to understand is we are indeed God's household. We belong to Him. This church does not belong to Pastor Rob. It doesn't belong to the elders. 
It doesn't belong to a denomination or anything like that. Our church belongs to God. It is His to do with as He sees fit because He purchased us. The Scripture says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now listen to this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The way we view ourselves will directly influence our conduct. If I view myself as a part of God's household, the fact that God owns me, then I'll honor Him with my body. I will be obedient to what He asks of me. That's what the Scripture is sharing with us. But then the text goes on. After the text talks about us being a part of the household of God, I want you to notice that it goes on to call us the church of the living God. Once again, speaking of that possession, we are owned by God. We belong to Him. So therefore, I should be obedient to what God asks of me. That's the thrust of this passage of Scripture. And as such, look at the specific instruction that He gives us right after He identifies us as His household and as His church. And by the way, church just means the called out ones of God. How is the church described? It is the pillar and the foundation of truth. Now what's being communicated there as far as our responsibility? We're to commit ourselves to making God's truth known. When God's Word describes us as the pillar and foundation of God's truth, it is not telling us that we're the originators of God's truth. God reveals His truth. And He reveals it to us through His Word. But when it describes us as a pillar and a foundation, you know what it's communicating? We're to support God's truth. We're to speak it forth. Our core message needs to be the very truth of God. If I make something else the center of my message, then I've missed the mark. There are many churches today that will take a current event, they'll run to find some sort of Scripture that touches on the current event, and their messages are driven by whatever's happening in the news that particular week. I believe the Word of God is what should set the standard for what we follow. We should see what God wants to say to us, not what we want to hear from God. And we should try to look at God's truth, God's Word, as something that is relevant for our lives, something that we are to adjust to, not to have the Word of God adjust to us. We are the pillar of God's truth. In other words, we are the ones who go to find what God's truth says, and then we speak it. That's the idea. We are to see God's truth as a standard. Because we have this warning later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
where Paul warns Timothy about a shift that will take place in the future. Notice it says this, preach the word. Now this is his instruction to Timothy. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. God wants us to be people who follow the truth of God, to be that pillar, that foundation of the truth, to be the people who stand on God's truth. But I want you to think about this as well. If I'm a pillar or a foundation of God's truth, one who discovers what God's truth is and then supports it, that means that there should be an ever-growing relationship with God's Word in the sense that I learn more and more of it. You see, we should never hit the point to where we look at God's Word and we say, you know, I think I've learned just about enough. I've been in ministry for a number of years, and I'll go back to passages that I've studied many times over, and you know what I discover? I scratched the surface. There's so much more there. We should be maturing and growing in God's truth. And that's what a person who is a pillar and a support of truth does. They go ever deeper into it. They try ever harder and ever more to understand it. The writer of Hebrews was giving some difficult doctrine concerning an Old Testament character named Melchizedek. And he sort of calls the readers that he's writing to to task. Because he says this, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God or God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with teaching about righteousness. But then look at the 14th verse. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. God's purpose in us being a pillar and a foundation of the truth is that we draw from God's Word insight as to what's right and wrong. And we develop that insight by training ourselves in it. In other words, personal study as well as corporate study of God's Word. We need to understand the importance of grasping the message of God's truth. Because you see, it's the Word of God that gives us insight into what really is. Again, the writer of Hebrews describes God's Word in this way. The Word of God is living and active Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's why God's given us His Word. We don't just moisten the finger, hold it up to the wind, and see which way the wind blows to determine what is. We find what is by what God has revealed. 
He is the God of revelation. He is the God who discloses Himself to people so that they might know Him and know His truth. And we as the church need to be careful to get that message out. And that brings us to our next point. As the people of God, we're not only to pursue God's will for the church, but we're to proclaim the message of Christ. And in so doing, what we must first do is consider the great mystery of godliness. When we come to the 16th verse, Paul makes a statement. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Now, what does he mean by that? First, we have to understand what he means by mystery. Mystery is something that's described in Scripture as something that was in the past but is now revealed. And when we look to God's Word, we find in the New Testament this term mystery is used many times. It's something, again, that had been hidden, not understood by those in the past, but now completely understood. Most often, when mystery is used, you know what it's talking about? The gospel. That God would become a man, live among us, die on the cross, be raised again, and that He would offer salvation to all who would believe in Him. That is the essence of God's mystery. That which had been hidden, even from the angels, we're told in the Word of God, but now completely revealed. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 26, says this, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints... To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of His mystery. Now what are the glorious riches of His mystery? Look at this. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We need to give thanks to God for the glorious mystery that is now revealed in us, in Christ Jesus. There should be thankfulness in our heart for His grace that has been given to us. The fact that God has transformed us by His power. The fact that we are made righteous before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. Not that I keep God's law and somehow become good enough for God to accept me. But that I come to God in my sin. And through the provision that He has given in Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection, I now can know God by His grace. Him giving to me something that I have not earned. I can know God. That's the mystery of godliness. Apart from what Christ has done, there is no godliness. But through Him, we can know the Father. And we can experience that relationship. And that's a great truth. The truth that the church needs to share with those around us. We need to share with people that God has the power to transform lives. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. God is in the transforming business. He changes lives. And He does it through Christ Jesus. And then Peter said this in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and what? Godliness. Through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. God gives us the power to change. Everything that we need for that transformation Everything that we need to live godly lives is provided by God Himself. I've heard people say, I can't be good enough to be a Christian. Have you ever heard that? I've heard it numerous times. You know what the Word of God says? Yes, you're right. You can't, but God can. And God has made a provision for you. And that provision is in Christ Jesus. Now, the concluding part of the 16th verse. As we look at the last part, I want you to notice that a hymn is actually quoted here in this passage. If you have an NIV Bible, it's kind of set up like a poem or a hymn. And this gives us an insight into a first century hymn. So it's kind of exciting that the Word of God has included this right here in the text. You know, one of the great things about Christian worship has always been the great songs of faith. This is one of them, as I said, from the first century. And if it's included in the Word of God, then it shows the importance of worship. The church should not only be a place of truth, but it should be a place of worship. And here's the insight that we have from this hymn. Worship should be biblically based. It should communicate God's truth. If we just worship because, hey man, i got a catchy tune and, you know, I really enjoy this tune, surely we can find something to say to make this tune work. We're approaching it backwards. God's Word is to be communicated, and I don't care about the style, whatever style. It's the content that really matters. And that's what we need to understand here in this text, this content. So let's look at what the first century church was worshiping God about. Notice that Paul begins by saying he appeared in the body. That's the first part of what they worshipped God about. It was speaking to the fact that Jesus came into this world and He revealed Himself to humanity. He demonstrated Himself to be God with us. You know, the Scripture really emphasizes in this text that He came in the body. Now, why is that important? What it's communicating to us is that Jesus became a man. He added to his deity humanity, and he became the God-man. And it was important that Jesus had the body because of the cross and the resurrection. You see, without the body, there's no shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. But because Jesus Christ had a human body, 
He was able to die on the cross for our sin, to shed his blood for us, that we might be forgiven and have a relationship with the Father. So when it says here that he appeared in the body, it's a statement of his crucifixion as well. And it's an important doctrine for the church to grasp. 1 John chapter 4 says this, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is is not from God. Excuse me, let me start that third verse all over again. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard and is coming and even now is already in the world. God wants us to understand the importance of the bodily appearance of Jesus Christ. But then the hymn moves on. When the Scripture says was vindicated by the Spirit, what is it communicating? When we look at this passage, some versions translate this was justified by the Spirit. In fact, the original language has the word justify in there. But justify can mean one of two things. It can either mean to become righteous or it can mean to be shown as righteous. And that's why the NIV translates this vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated goes with that second meaning. The idea that He showed Himself to be righteous. But how did Jesus show Himself to be righteous? According to the Word of God, Jesus showed Himself to be righteous by the resurrection. You see, had Jesus committed sin, he could not have been resurrected. He would not have been resurrected. In the book of Romans, and I just somehow skipped Romans, so let's read it if you have your outlines handy. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The Scripture says this, Regarding his Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what that passage is saying? The Spirit demonstrated the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ by His resurrection. So when the Scripture says, and this hymn says, He was vindicated by the Spirit, it's speaking to the resurrection. Then notice the next statement. He was seen by angels. When this speaks of him being seen by angels, it talks about the superiority of Jesus to angels. It talks about the fact that Jesus was over the angels. And what we find in this particular passage is an affirmation that he is over all. In Philippians 2.9 it says this, Therefore... God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. God is supreme, and when it's saying that He was seen by the angels, this passage is holding forth the supremacy of Christ. But then, look at the next statement. He was preached among the nations. The proclamation of Jesus 
given to all. The message of the church has to be the truth of who Jesus is and how He changes our lives. And it should be a part of our worship as well. We should express to God our wonder, our appreciation, our thanks for the message that came to us. And then we should be inspired to bring that message to others. We're following the command of Jesus Christ when we do that. Jesus told His disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are a part of that process. We're the ends of the earth when you look at Jerusalem. But God wants us to take that message and continue to spread it by the power of God's Spirit. And that should be a part of what we do as a church body. And that should be a part of our worship. Thanking God for what He has done, bringing the message to us. And notice it says here that it was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world. God is the God of missions. He has the heart of a missionary. Evidenced by Him sending His Son into this world, first of all, but also evidenced by sending those who brought the Gospel to you and to me. We are products of the missionary heart of God. That's why Paul challenges our thinking with this in Romans, where he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God wants us to be bearers of good news. Final statement. This hymn says, He was taken up in glory. This, of course, refers to the ascension of Jesus Christ. When you read Acts chapter 1, there's a description of Christ going into glory. But you know, when I think of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the fact that He went up to be at the Father's right hand, you know what I also think about? His return. Why? In the passage in Acts where this was given, Acts chapter 1, and turn there with me for just a moment. Acts chapter 1. We see Jesus interacting with His disciples. He had just told them to take the Gospel around the world. And then they asked Him a couple of questions. Jesus responded, and we come to the 10th verse. Or 9th verse. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, can you imagine be talking to the Lord Jesus Christ and then to have him taken up in a cloud? It would absolutely cause you to just kind of stand and stare, and that's what the disciples did because in verse 10 it says, they were looking intently up into the sky. I think that's probably a major understatement, don't you? 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. And look at the 11th verse. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The ascension and Christ's return. He left earth to go to heaven, but there is the promise contained right here that he will leave heaven to return to earth. This hymn that we find in 1 Timothy is a tremendous hymn, full of meaning, full of doctrine, full of truth. This is the kind of worship that we should have, a truthful, scriptural, foundational worship. And it also shows us the importance of worship itself. If God's eternal word is going to record what people did when they worshiped in the Psalms and in several hymns that are quoted in the New Testament, there's an important place in the church body. So we as a church body should conduct ourselves by following God in worship. Let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for this text. We thank you for the revelation that we have as to who we are and how we're to conduct ourselves. We thank you that we're the household of God, that we are the church of the living God, that there is a relevance to church and importance to church. And God, my prayer is that we would view church as you view it. If we've been hurt, Lord, let us put aside our hurts for the greater good of the church body. Father, if we're disillusioned, help us to rekindle our passion and our view of the church and see it as you see it. And Father, we pray that we would conduct ourselves in a way that honors and pleases you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.